0: Hello, this is Bent Notes Queer Musicology Podcast, you're listening to episode 4, The Afterlife of Freddie Mercury. This time I was joined by Jack Doyle and Marie Bennett. Marie is a committee member of the LGBTQ Plus Music Study Group. She is a PhD student at the University of Winchester. She works on the Hollywood film musical, Celebrity Culture, Pop of the 60s, 70s and 80s, and the Eurovision Song Contest. She's recently co-edited a book on music and death. Jack is a PhD student in the Department of History at University of Oxford. His thesis, which he very recently handed in, is on fighter pilots in the First World War as combatants and cultural icons, but he's also worked on early 20th century trans identities and AIDS crisis activism networks. He and Marie share an obsession with Freddie Mercury, and they're here to talk about what makes him such an enduring queer icon. As a side note, this will be the first episode of Bent Notes that features no music. Uh, Unfortunately, we didn't have a million pounds to spend on licensing fees, um, so if you don't already know what Freddie sounds like, um, well, I'd recommend you tap into YouTube right now. So this is Jack Doyle and Maria Bennett on the afterlife of Freddie Mercury.
1: Um, so maybe I could start off, Jack, by asking you, because obviously we're from very different generations, mm-hmm. and yet Freddie still continues to appeal. I'm really interested in the research you've done with younger people and what it is about Freddie's iconic stature that really appeals to the LGBTQ plus community.
2: Well I think I got into looking into Freddie um, one because obviously I'm a fan but also I was really interested in him as this person who only kind of really properly came out of the closet after his death so he's sort of this posthumous gay celebrity or, or queer celebrity you know just anecdotally and in my own life I definitely seen him kind of become reclaimed as this like icon of our community mm-hmm. um, but as I was doing some kind of parallel research into AIDS crisis activism I realized that his public persona was was not firmly associated with the gay community. You know, he didn't really speak publicly very much about Mm. HIV and AIDS. Basically, I I was really curious about like, what is it about him that really appeals to young people today? Why do people identify with him and Mm. and how? And, you know, kind of how has his legacy been shaped after his death as this iconic part of our community?
1: Mm. What do you think it is about him that's appealed to? Is it the music? Is it the stage persona? Or is it a combination of factors?
2: Well, I think it's interesting because like I've also done a couple of oral histories like with people who knew him and mm. I mean I think the appeal to them originally was the same kind of thing that appeals to people today. It's like mm. his amazing, larger than life camp persona, mm. um his like incredibly powerful stage presence and you know his his embodying of this really flamboyant masculinity which on stage comes across as really unapologetic but like as we know it's a little more complicated in his, mm. his personal life so I, basically i did a survey of uh young lgbtq people's relationships with freddie mercury um most of the people i surveyed were born uh, after he died mm. or were very young when he died um so he's definitely like not in the same generation as them, but um, somebody who identified as a queer trans man responded, you know, to the question of, like, why is Freddie Mercury important to you with... And I think this sums it up pretty well. He said, Freddie was one of the first queer men I learned about and was an inspiration during my gender-fucking in high school and college, as much for his masculinity as his fashion and queerness. I dressed up like him. I made a Killer Queen t-shirt to wear when I couldn't. I learned Queen songs on the piano. I wouldn't be who I am as a trans man if it weren't for him.
1: That's, that's amazing, isn't it? And yet there was this sort of difference between, as you hinted at earlier, the, the public persona and the private man um, to the extent that he, he didn't reveal that he had AIDS, that he was HIV positive until the day before he died, mm. even though it, it was suspected. You know, I think he had a fantastic group of friends that sort of closed around him and respected that he wanted to stay as private as possible as, as long as possible, um, so it's interesting that there's this sort of change almost that um, what's really important for, for people in that community is the fact that he is a queer icon almost. Mm. That And yet when he was alive, as you said, he was very evasive about his sexual orientation and, and quite dismissive if people ask questions about it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's really interesting, especially when you have, like, you know, people in his own lifetime, like his peers who, who did come out. Maybe the most obvious example is like Joe Brieth, who was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of early 1970s glam rocker, who... Mm-hmm. Really got lambasted as kind of being I think there was a review in NME about him as the the fag end of glam rock mm. so like really he he did like suffer the consequences of his sexuality and you know Elton John came out as bisexual and, mm. and didn't really come out as gay until shortly after Freddie died actually but yeah. you know you do have people who made really different choices and how they negotiated like the kind of closet and celebrity but, yeah, I think it's, it's really striking to me that people have reclaimed him so thoroughly yes. that the kind of more complicated nature of his own life has, has almost been erased in a way. Mm. You know, people, I think, get surprised when I say, well, you know, he never actually, like, had a sort of big public coming out moment, right? Mm. Like, I mean, he did refer to himself like using different words and different terms, mm. but like some people I, I speak to are surprised when mm. they say like, you know, they're like, "What do you mean? Like, he wasn't out?" Like, you know. And I was yeah. like, "No, no, it's a little more complicated." Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, absolutely. I, I've done the same. I said, mm. "Well, he didn't, you know, formally come out and if we do but of course he was queer. You could, you know, you could tell he was queer. I said, "Well, what, what was it then?" What. What was it about him that says that? And I I suppose the gay clone image that he adopted sort of late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. He was sort of almost trying to say something, but not saying it. Yeah. I
2: mean, I think the thing is, like, as with, like, any kind of gay history, it's like, if you are... Gay or, or queer or whatever it, in the community in some way, mm. um, you do know. Like, I mean, I, I doubt that many like bi or gay men watching Freddie perform or watching mm. him being interviewed on TV wouldn't recognize mm. him. Um, and, and certainly like he was very involved in the community and that's something I'm, I'm trying to look at, into more right. um, but he was you know like very regularly like would go to gay clubs in in London like heaven and um, he was on the scene mm. so it's more of a question of like why was that not recognised maybe so much by the straight public mm. or why was that acceptable to the straight public that's mm. what is, is interesting to me yes
1: because yeah. people were just saying oh Freddie shaved him mustache off, it doesn't mm. suit you, and throwing razors on the stage, you know, yeah. with absolutely no conception <laughs> of what, you know, was being represented really through, right, through right. the image, which is <laughs>
2: Yeah, but at the same time, I think with a lot of his sort of gender fucking and stuff throughout his career, mm. he very much played that within a tradition of like white British campness. Mm. Um, that existed in, like, British performance tradition mm-hmm. and, and within his peers. Like, something like the I Want to Break Free video where he's, you know, yeah. and the other members of Queen are in drag. Mm-hmm. Like, to the British public, like, watching Monty Python and stuff at, on TV at the same time, mm-hmm. that wouldn't have looked so strange. Mm-hmm. And yet it was banned in the States. Um, yes. because that Because that was a transgression that went too far. Yes. Um, but that was part of, like, British performance tradition enough that people recognize that as being Mm. safe.
1: Mm. I wonder if also the the fact that Queen emerged during the glam rock era, Mm. that maybe it's sort of uh, been there in the 80s with groups like Bronski Beat or whatever, but the fact that they were part of this glam rock scene, if you like, also meant that you could sort of almost
2: camouflage your identity
1: to a certain extent.
2: Yeah, I don't know if camouflage Mm. is the right word, because again, this is getting at the like, you know... If you're putting it out there, like, people are going to know, but it's, Mm. like, how are you packaging it, kind of. I think you're exactly right, because glam rock is always so weird to me as this combo of, like... Very camp, very flamboyant, uh, very like gay-coded music mm. that is also like often incredibly sexually aggressive and like macho and muscular. Like, you know, like mm. I mean, I think that's why so many people were kind of freaked out by David Bowie, like because he was obviously like really sexual, yes, um, despite being so gender nonconforming. And mm. um, and I think it's interesting as well that like Queen, you know, started out in very much in the glam rock genre. And then as they progressed, mm. I mean, they were actually a very like diverse genre-wise band. But mm. um, you know, Freddie started presenting himself as as more masculine in a way, mm. and, and yes. uh, yeah, less so like the glam rock kind yes. of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, lo- I love this quote from um, Barney Hoskins actually. He says, "No act got away with camp in quite the way Queen did."
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> and and I think that's so sort of true, really, because it was so you know in your face almost what they were doing or what freddy was doing
2: yeah i think there's there's a really good quote of freddy's actually that kind of like i think acknowledges like how conscious he was of that of like how he was mobilizing that image and like kind of walking that line between being like you know outrageous and like unacceptable kind of yeah when he talks about naming the band he said I was certainly aware of the gay connotations, uh, but that was just one facet of it. Mm. Anyway, we always preferred to think of Queen in the regal sense rather than in the queer <laughs> one. We worried that the name would give people the wrong idea, but knew our music would override the image because we'd concentrate on putting out good product the whole time. We were confident people would take to us because although the camp image had already been established by Bowie and Bolan, we were taking it to another level. Mm. Um, so I think with that, like you really do see, you know. Um, his his own real consciousness about what he's doing and i think he was really because he never really spoke about it publicly i think people don't give him enough credit for how thoroughly and consciously he was thinking about all these different facets of the yeah. band's presentation his own presentation and and i think he was like he's really smart businessman in that mm. sense
0: yes
1: yeah no i agree um, one of the inter- videos, rather, that I really like towards the end of Freddie's life is "A Great Pretender," hmm. <laughs> because he transforms himself again, and yet he's also one of the backing vocalists in drag, along with Roger Taylor yeah. and Peter Straker. So he's he's presenting almost this dual image again through that song, and, and just the fact that it is a great pretender. I, I just wondered. What were your view was on, on that particular sort of performance and mm. song?
2: I mean, for me as somebody who works on AIDS crisis history, that so obviously to me, is um, part of a wider history of, of AIDS and HIV art mm. Um, mm. And, and memoir. Um, but again, because I think it was mostly being viewed by straight audiences in the way mm. that, say, like, Derek Jarman's films mm. weren't, um, you know, that was more of a obviously gay cultural production. Yeah. I think Freddie hasn't been included so much within that canon of uh. AIDS crisis like artists, because mm. um, I mean I don't know if you agree, but like to me that's so obviously somebody who knows he's dying, yeah, and um, and is aligning himself with kind of in community aesthetics and sensibilities mm. and, and traditions mm. um, in terms of. You know how he's framing his own death, and yeah. kind of, and I do think it is interesting. Like he's in the background in drag, you know, Yes. Kind of as well and, yes, um, and both kind of acknowledging like a, a difference between a public and a private persona. Absolutely. In a way. Yeah. yeah,
1: absolutely, and and I think, I mean, my feeling is part of the reason he didn't divulge um, too much about his illness, even though you know it was clear there was something wrong. Was really because he wanted to work as long as he possibly could. Mm. And I think that if things had gone out, it would have just impacted so much, not just on him, but the other members of the band. I think there was a strong loyalty there to try and, you know, we need to work, we need to work, we need to work. I want to record as much as I possibly can, you know, while I can. Yeah. Um, and, and that that has been sort of twisted, you know, with people criticizing him for, for not saying earlier that, that he to have AIDS. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, and I think a lot of Queen fans like often don't know Freddie's solo stuff as well because mm. for me his solo stuff is a lot more explicitly gay. Yes. Um, yeah, and, um, I, it, his, his partner, Jim Hutton, actually, the only song that he knew of Freddie's before when he met him was, uh, Love Kills, mm. the, his solo song because that was popular in, gay clubs Mm -hmm. and weirdly for me I find that that's actually still one of the few songs that comes on of his in gay clubs um yeah yeah, which is which is really interesting to me but I I think probably one of the most important projects that he worked on Mm -hmm. was um his collaboration with his favorite opera singer um Mm -hmm. and which is and that album is is mm. stunning mm. Um, and it's, uh, it's something that I think most Queen fans probably wouldn't listen to but again it was something that was very much important to him and, mm. and um, I think it's the most, most vulnerable of his works
1: mm. Yes, no, I think that um, I mean I hear Barcelona actually funnily enough on the radio quite a lot it's mm. one of those tracks that does tend to be played but I think that there's something very poignant about that whole episode that that part of his life mm. really when he was aware of his illness and telling people you know who were close to him and I'm not saying it was a last hurrah but I, I just think his performance is amazing his vocals are amazing and it's just something you can tell it's something he really really wanted to do yeah yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. It's interesting because, like, he, as a as a musician, I feel like didn't speak very honestly or thoroughly about the production of his music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, he was always, like, notoriously coy about the actual meaning of Bohemian Rhapsody, mm-hmm. which a lot of my respondents say that they read as a, as a gay song. I, I think it's more complicated. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, he notoriously hated interviews, and mm-hmm. so... He, he really didn't speak a lot about the inspiration for certain songs um, and when he did I, I think he wasn't often very honest mm. about where things were going so exactly it's, it's it's stuff like that where you actually have to know kind of the context mm. of like had he told the people that he was working with mm. um, and you know was he in a space when he was producing a certain song or a certain album mm. where people understood that he was dying mm. um and how did that affect perhaps the production of his music?
1: Yeah. Talking of Bohemian Rhapsody, <laughs> oh <God>. I suppose <laughs> I need to touch on the film. Oh, God, okay, fine. <laughs> um, I suppose if only because it is, um, I mean, I know a lot of younger people who have seen the film, and that's probably the first thing they are seeing about Freddie Mercury. Mm just the accolades and everything around that has meant that it's become very famous, people want to see it. Yeah. Um, but as we know, it's not um, a particularly sort of accurate representation of Freddie or indeed the band. Yes. Um, so I, I just wondered what your views were yeah. really on how that might sort of impact on people's perception of, of
2: Freddie. Well. I do think it is interesting that it is the perception of the band that the surviving members Mm. of the band signed off on. Um, I mean, I hated Bohemian Rhapsody. I'm going to be honest. I thought it was, in terms of the treatment of his sexuality, Mm. very homophobic. I think there were some elements of it that were very racist and insensitive about how they handled his relationship to his family and Mm. his race. But I I don't know. I, I think... It is interesting because even when I have spoken to younger LGBTQ people mm. who are being introduced to Freddie's backstory through the film mm. Bohemian Rhapsody, they often recognize that something is wrong there in the telling <laughs> no, of that story. Okay. Um, and Or at least that, you know, maybe they're not getting the whole story about, mm. say, um, Freddie's relationship with uh, his partner, Jim Hutton, mm. or his own journey with his sexuality. Mm. You know, I think it's pretty clear in the film that the way his sexuality is portrayed is, like, not great. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's that the scene where, like, he's having a big party at his house and the other members of Queen... Um, sort of chastely come over and are like, mm. I'll have one beer, please. i got to get home before, for the kids. And Absolutely, I was like, yeah. and I was like, that, that was not the case. <laughs> uh, I think you'll find, um, you know, but Freddie is like, you know, essentially shown to be this like deviant who's like having this, all these orgies and stuff mm. like, which he did. Mm. And so did the other members of the band. Mm. Like, yeah. you know. So I think people do recognize that that maybe there's something wrong or incomplete about that portrayal and that mm. that does tap into some kind of well-established homophobic tropes. Mm. Um, but it's frustrating to me that there's not more of an easy way to get access to a fuller picture of him yeah. um, to people who are maybe just discovering him. I, mm. I did, I don't know what you thought of um, Rocket Rocketman, mm. uh, the Elton John mm. biopic. I actually really liked that because yeah. I thought that really uh, reflected like, you know, John's, I mean, complicated relationship and sometimes very painful relationship mm. to sexuality, but really joyful, like, sexy relationships with men mm. and, you know, really how his sexuality and how his experiences, like, informed his music. Mm. And, yeah, for, for me, that was, a, that was a very good gay film.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's just it's just amazing that Bohemian Rhapsody was so lauded, and yet Rocketman, although people praised it, and certainly everyone that I spoke to who'd seen it as well was saying, oh, it's so much better mm. <laughs> than Bohemian Rhapsody. And yet it just didn't get the plaudits. Oh, it, it, it just sort of made me feel we were almost going backwards. that in 2018 you've got mm. a film here, a biopic about somebody who's queer, and we're going back to the sort of... Cold Port and Night and Day by a picture of the 40s and 50s yeah. where you've got to sort of, you know, there's a bit of censorship. And yeah. I, I wasn't quite sure, as you say, the other members of the band were involved and sort of signed off on it, but it just seemed a very sort of strange representation.
2: And I, I thought as well, like, it was a very sterilized um, Mm. version of his and the band's relationship with their music. Mm. I thought that the choice to like dub Queen over the actor singing and stuff, like, I mean, obviously it'd be, it'd be pretty tough to find somebody who could actually like hit Freddie's full range. Um, Although, Was Mika not available? I don't know. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but the whole thing of, you know, they they recreate the Live Aid performance at mm. the end. I found that really bizarre just yeah. because for me, like so much of the way that I know, like I react emotionally to Freddie's music mm-hmm. is seeing him perform and embody those songs. Yeah. And, and I, I thought there was a real difference in, say, for example, watching Terry Egerton playing Elton John, mm. where he was singing the songs. Yeah. And he wasn't trying to do just, like, an exact copy of Elton John. Yes. But you could feel, like, in his performance mm. that he was really connecting with. And, and it was just a much more authentic yeah. Um, yeah. thing, you no. know. Otherwise, it was, like, it was just kind of like, this is, like, a weird lip sync, you know. Yes. And it was like, this is not, yeah.
1: Yeah, because a lot of the attention was on how well they had copied the real Live Aid film. And, and I was thinking, but you can go on YouTube and watch... Queen yeah. do that so why, why do this?
2: <laughs> I, I did say to his, like many people I'm sure you did the same where like people mm. were like oh I was thinking about seeing Bohemian Rhapsody I'm like I'd really recommend just going and watching the Live Aid performance like yes. you'll have a much better time. Yeah. Yes
1: yes no no absolutely I think so um, and yet Live Aid was very important I think in terms of again bringing a new audience mm. to Queen and I know it's people say oh it's one of the best gigs ever
2: and you know,
1: whatever. <laughs> I, I may not agree with that because I saw Queen quite a few times, but, but oh, it was clearly... <laughs>
2: <laughs> we got to talk about that. <laughs> I
1: had yeah. to get that in. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, but it was clearly they had decided exactly what they wanted to do. It was very professional. But fady had this remarkable rapport with an audience that wasn't a Queen audience. Mm. It was just a general... Audience there to see a selection of bands, and yet it was amazing. I think um, maybe I can't remember if it was Mijure or Bob Geldof, but they they sort of said something like he he had the audience in the palm of his hand, and you mm. can just see that, can't yeah. you? Really when
2: you see it I mean I do want to ask you about how that (laughs) feels in person but one of my favorite performances of his is um, I think Queen was one of the first like western bands to perform in Hungary Mm. there's that amazing performance of him where he spontaneously I think either opened or closed the show by performing a Hungarian folk song wow uh, mm. in hungarian which mm. he's like reading phonetically off yeah. his hand and the crowd just explodes mm. like everyone's so it's like you know you have this huge stadium like i, I do want to ask you about mm. you know um, maybe like we can talk a little bit about like your perception of freddie like as a fan during his lifetime mm. and kind of people's awareness of of him being queer of some kind mm. like and and maybe comparing that to you know how people engage with him today
1: yes I suppose because I first saw them as a school girl at the end of 75 in Hammersmith oh, wow. so not early. the Hammersmith a night at the Odeon but um <laughs> earlier that month and I just couldn't take my eyes off him I mean it was just something and, and then he he had a much more stilted performance he wasn't quite as confident mm. in those days as he became later but there was just still something about him and the way he I, I don't know he just sort of the stage was his, I suppose, mm. to a certain extent. And I think it was probably, like we were talking about earlier, the glam rock scene that was still in play, but I think things changed, really, with disco in the late 70s and this sort of more an awareness of queer culture and, and this sort of thing, and that's something that Freddie probably did embrace during the early 80s. And I think it was after that that people became more aware really about Freddie's queerness mm. and I think he did show that in his performances he almost came to terms with things a bit mm. more I think although he wasn't sort of you don't see anything that he was particularly close to his parents I think he he did still respect the fact that they were Zoroastrian and their religion and I think he well he did have a yeah. Zoroastrian
2: funeral and yes and, he did know, and, Yeah, and I know he did go to see his parents about, yeah, you know, a couple times a month Yes, stuff. like I I do think they were close. I, yeah. I just don't think we know that much about how they related to his sexuality, but, like, mm. his parents knew mm. Jim Hutton and knew his yeah. close friends and yeah. everything, so I don't think that was, like, the only factor in him, you know, keeping closeted or, or No, or yeah.
1: no. Although I think in the early days, perhaps there yeah. was this sort of should-I-shouldn't-I... I mean, his sister has said that, oh, we knew, but we didn't talk about it. Mm. Yeah. And maybe that's how he sort of... Came to terms with it within his family. Um, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And of course, again, I think this is another thing that maybe gets left out of people's memories of him today. You know, I was really struck when I started doing this research on Freddie about the virulence with how he was treated in in the British tabloid press, mm. things like in the in the Daily Sport. Right after his death, the headline, Don't Cry for Killer Freddie," mm. The Lancashire Evening Telegraph, Don't Weep for Foolish Freddie." Queen's Queen only got what he deserved. Mm. Um, he was a murderer. Uh, he wasn't just promiscuous. He was quite obsessive in his desire for sex. And uh, the editor of the Daily Star, mm. a week after Freddy's death, It seems to me Princess Diana's morbid fascination with AIDS has hung a royal warrant over the disease. And endorsed it as an acceptable and fashionable way of dying. Mm. It was clearly a very pointed reference to Freddie. I think right after his death. Yeah. I I, I wonder if you remember kind of the lead up to that. Like, do, was that quite obvious? Like homophobia in the press, like present at other points that you remember in his career, or do you think it was really connected to people becoming aware of the fact he was dying of AIDS? I,
1: mean, I think that the group as a whole had always been suspicious of journalists, and mm-hmm. I think that was part of the reason that, that Freddie didn't really like to be interviewed, or he needed to trust the person who was interviewing him. And I think that Live aids sort of changed that a little bit, mm-hmm. because everyone had to accept that they were actually pretty Superstars, good. yeah. <laughs> But then, really, it was at the um, Brit Award ceremony in 1990, when he actually came on stage, it was his last public appearance, mm-hmm. and you could just see yeah. he was unwell. I mean, his suit was much too big for him. And, but he But he did it, and he came on, and he got the award with the other band members, and I think it was following that that the knives began to come out, right. really. Towards the end, everyone was just outside his house, waiting for that scoop, waiting yeah. for the news... And, yeah, some of the the headlines were just awful. Similarly, Daily Star, they said um, Mercury was responsible for pressing his own self-destruct button. Yeah. And that, I think, then changed, or my view is it changed, because the fans and people who respected him as an artist were actually grieving Mm. and then... The journalist thought, oh, actually, maybe we shouldn't be taking this stance, we should be changing it, and things began to change a little bit. But just one thing I thought might be interesting, after the tribute concert for AIDS Awareness that the band members set up in April 92, even then, someone was saying in Melody Maker, Mercury was never as stellar as his name, Mm -hmm. and on finding he was HIV positive, didn't have the courage of character to admit it, and that was Mm -hmm. after the AIDS
2: Awareness concert. It is interesting cuz actually i encounter a little bit of that attitude within some of the responses of of young people i talk to today mm. people who maybe do know that he wasn't out and sort of say well why wasn't he more public about it mm. um he could have changed things earlier maybe mm. um which i think it's wrong to mm. put like that responsibility on mm. on one individual person you know especially with the complicating factor of that Freddie wasn't white and mm. was also having to defend himself and sort of construct a public persona mm. around being a respectable, like, white, mm. camp British star. And, you know, I mean, he wasn't even from the UK originally. Yeah. Like, so yeah. I think people kind of don't fully appreciate that Mm. context but also you know it is interesting in thinking about how his celebrity has been posthumously curated you know i mean people kind of assume that because he was so public and larger than life in his performances Mm. that that you know should have been reflected in his say Mm. personal politics and stuff as well Mm.
1: That is interesting because there was sort of two sides and I think he wanted to be respected for his music and his art and wanted that privacy at the end. And as I said earlier, to to also protect the other band members. Maybe if he'd been just on his own, you know, as a singer, as sort of Elton John, if you like, it would have been different. But he was part of a a group and so it impacted also on the other three members of the group,
2: really. It is this complicated thing, though, and maybe this is specific to a band like Queen, where you have three straight members mm. and, and one gay member of them, mm. who are often speaking mm. to really different audiences. Mm. I mean, I, I think it's pretty fair to say that like Queen, I mean, is a mass mainstream like mm. you know band with with probably a predominantly like straight cisgender audience. Mm and yet they have this little like niche of resonance for LGBTQ people. Yeah. And I, I do think the band like has misstepped in how they've handled that. Like they do support um, the Phoenix Trust everything, mm. and everything, but I don't think they have really... And, and I, don't, I don't know, it's like, mm. where is their responsibility? But I don't yeah. think they've adequately sort of stepped up in terms of how they're addressing the homophobia and racism that right. has shaped Freddie's legacy and xenophobia. And mm. For me, what really encapsulated this was the scene in Bohemian Rhapsody where, right before Live Aid, Freddie mm. tells the band mm. that he is HIV positive. Mm. Although he doesn't use those words, he just mm. says, "I've got it." Yes. yes. Um, whereas, of course, like we know, that was a mm. much more personal conversation mm. that came beforehand, mm. um, and that you know was not the driving force of of that incredible defining performance. Mm. I don't know I, mm. it's kind of a no win scenario but I, I think it is maybe a unique case for Queen where they yeah. do have these two really different you know cultural resonances mm.
1: um, it is a difficult one I suppose they're trying to protect the memory and promote the memory of Freddie and, and I know with their gigs now with Adam Lambert, mm. who again is another queer mm. artist and he's performing the songs of Queen. It's it's slightly strange for me anyway. <laughs> oh yeah,
2: yeah. I don't think I'd, I could go to a Queen yeah. day today. Like, yeah. It'd be too weird for me. Because it's not really it's not it's like yeah (laughs) yeah definitely and it's almost Mm. kind of like i don't know is that a marketing choice to have like your flamboyant front man Mm. like you know and i i don't want to like you know shit on the other members of queen like there's one thing about like you know respecting them all as as artists and maybe acknowledging that you know straight people are not always going to be the best people to know how to recognize and navigate homophobia Mm. yeah in a peer's legacy
1: yeah I mean it's interesting that you still have these sort of activities like Freddie for a Day and which are around the Mercury Phoenix Trust and that people get involved in and contribute to the legacy in terms of sort of the raising of money for AIDS awareness mm. um, con- contrasted with sort of the iconic persona I suppose
2: I yeah it's interesting like um, so I think this connects to a wider issue in the LGBTQ community today mm-hmm. where because the AIDS crisis is no longer as acute and be seen as, as the most defining issue mm-hmm. in our community, a lot of younger LGBTQ people, I think, don't immediately connect Freddie with HIV and AIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more about his persona, mm-hmm. his maybe relationship with Jim Hutton, um mm-hmm. And the fact he was a, a sort of member of the community and, and involved in gay culture. Yeah. So I, I have seen many, like, drag performances mm. where people are doing Freddie in drag or, or, like, say that I want to break free, like, uh, you know, cleaning routine, now yeah, with the Hoover, yeah, <laughs> in drag. And that is related to AIDS awareness and fundraising. Okay but i think a lot of younger people it's more about kind of the immediate emotional connection of like seeing someone like them or seeing someone who resonates with them on youtube or you know on the radio or or having freddie be a reference point for them in explaining their sexuality or gender to family mm-hmm. because i think for a lot of people freddie was maybe the first person a lot of straight people knew who had hiv and mm-hmm. um, who you know was clearly like both beloved and queer in the public eye mm. and so that's the thing that really comes up a lot is okay. people say like he was the first time like I'd ever had what being gay was explained to me mm. and that's really interesting
1: yeah because I, I think from someone who died in 1991 I just find it fascinating really that he's remembered so strongly I mean I'm, I'm delighted obviously <laughs> because I think it's important that he's remembered but is there anything as well if, about his sort of otherness in not being a white British man, but but in that world of pop and rock. But at that time, most people, I suppose, in the UK anyway were.
2: It's interesting. I think a lot of people who are young people who are interested in Freddie Mercury, this is often a really important thing for them Mm -hmm. to reclaim and to highlight. Some of my respondents were Indian or Pakistani or or from Indian-Pakistani backgrounds. And they sometimes cited him as being somebody that, again, their families knew um, and somebody that they looked to for personal inspiration, you know, as a queer brown person. Right. So I think that is really important, but again, that process of reclamation mm. sometimes can erase the complicated relationship Freddie had to his own race and mm. to the press. He was always very careful to obscure his mm. relationship to being a man of colour. Mm. Correctly, he would say mm. his dad, like, worked for the British Foreign Service, mm. Like, but the implication there was that he was, like, a white Englishman yeah. who, you know, rather than An Indian man who Mm. was working in Zanzibar. Mm. I think Freddie, you know, very carefully packaged himself in a way where his race was actually rarely an issue, not never so much as his sexuality Mm. in the press. And again, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that and hear about how much I guess that was in the public eye. Yeah. You know.
1: And and I don't think it was particularly Mm. interestingly, but I I think it was partly, as you say, he was um, he was quite evasive really about his background he never really said very much about it and because of that people didn't focus on it almost very much i mean i know he went to a british Mm. school didn't he in in india but even so you know it was something that maybe now people are discussing a lot more than they did at the time yeah
2: and i think it is important to Mm. to highlight you know and be like actually yeah like Mm. the front man of like one of the most famous bands ever. Was an Indian man, mm. um, but you know, along with that, I, I think you know we should look at why somebody who came to prominence in the UK as a rock star in mm. the seventies and eighties found that like the unful full story about his background was incompatible with stardom, mm. um, and you know was something that that he needed to manage very carefully. Yeah. maybe even more so than his sexuality. Mm. Um, yeah.
1: So so where are you going? next if you like with your research <laughs>
2: yeah it's a good question I mean again like as a historian mm-hmm. um, maybe you've found this as well mm-hmm. I, I've always hesitated a little bit to focus on one person mm-hmm. as not least because it seems a little self indulgent like full <laughs> disclosure I do have a Freddie Mercury tattoo like you know Sorry. it's yeah the optics <laughs> of that are like questionable um, but I'd really like to do more oral histories of people who were in the gay scene especially in London uh, in the 1980s Mm. and and look at kind of the cultural history of gay like social and community life alongside Mm. AIDS crisis activism and Mm. healthcare responses because you know I'm really intrigued by the fact that like that was a huge part of Freddie's life yeah and a place where he was actually able to be relatively anonymous. Yeah. And from the few just kind of informal conversations I've had mm-hmm. um, with gay men who you know, were on the scene in, mm-hmm. in the 80s, a lot of them remember seeing Freddie and mm-hmm. um, having mutual friends with him wow. and it being this really rare unusual space where, one, there was all these really interconnected social relationships, mm-hmm. but also there were certain conversations being had about Um, community identity that Mm. um, we don't see so much in the public eye. So I've started this research a little bit with looking at the gay press in the, um, kind of from the mid-80s to the early 90s. But I think I'd really like to do more oral history. Um, Mm. So anyone out there has a Freddie Mercury story to tell let me know yeah
1: that sounds yeah. really interesting I mean I don't know about you I was fine with Freddie I I sort of almost want to do him justice every time mm. I'm I'm writing something about him because for me it's like self I think a sort of sideline project almost but I I feel I want to get that information out there <laughs> yeah really but I do feel that I I want I want to be factual but I also want to do him proud
2: almost Absolutely. because
1: he was such an important figure
2: yeah, absolutely. I, I feel about him in a way I don't feel with mm. most of my historical subjects mm. because he has been so important to me. I'm going to get emotional, but like, oh. he, you know, when I was um, first, you know, I'm a, I'm a gay trans man, and when mm. I was first medically transitioning and really struggling with family and, um, you know, kind of where I fit in in the world, like, I went through, like, solid months of just watching youtube videos of him performing and being into and without being melodramatic like Mm. i really do think that like saved me in that period Mm. like i really and i've not had that with many other people you know where i was able to kind of look at this Mm. icon of gay masculinity Mm. and and really be like it's okay Mm. you know that that is accessible to me Mm. and like that is somebody who resonates with me on such a deep level when you feel that way about somebody Mm. it's almost like weird or hard Mm. to do research on you know Mm. it's like that's somebody who who is so important to me Mm. and I think for historians it's sometimes embarrassing to admit that but I think it's important to, you know, just for your own methodology, just be like, yeah. all right, maybe I'm going to need to, like, chill out a little bit on this, you know, yeah. like, yeah. And, and for you, like, as mm. somebody with, you know, such a long mm. personal history with him, mm. I, I think that's the tough one to navigate. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: But I think Freddie would love that. I, I think, honestly, yeah. that what you said, I think he would he would absolutely love that yeah. to see him.
2: yeah yeah i know i i I hope so yeah no i'm not sure he would yeah you know while we can maybe debate the historicity of that you Mm -hmm. know i i do think like his empathy and and love like comes comes across absolutely yeah and and maybe that's part of why people grab onto him so much Mm -hmm. as an icon
0: yes yes yeah huge thanks to marie and jack for what i think was a really beautiful discussion to hear more about the study group, be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or visit lgbtqmusicstudygroup.com. We're having a Queer Forum Day on Friday the 3rd of April at the University of York, and it's totally free to attend, so please visit our website to find out more. In the meantime, please leave a comment, tell us what you thought of the episode, subscribe wherever you're listening, and tell everybody you know. This episode was supported by the AHRC Torch Graduate Projects Fund. Bent Notes is brought to you by the LGBTQ Music Study Group. We're supported by the Royal Musical Association, the British Forum for Ethnomusicology and the Society for Musicology in Ireland.